The Fool's Gallery presents Chapter 10, The Spring Solstice, taken from the journals of Max Landau, year 148 DD, 76 days into our voyage. The town was alive with energy, and yet something was wrong. Strange music played and children sang in an eerie tune. The people of Haven moved around me, not speaking, a feeling of dread building with every step. I found myself jostled by the crowd and moved as if caught in a current until I found myself at the edge of a circle. I began to ask a neighbor for clarification, but stopped when I noticed that every eye was directed towards the circle's center. I followed their gaze to where the small sapling stood, its bark pearly white, its leaves a deep red. The square was well lit, but not a torch burned. Instead the leaves from the nearby trees glowed with a silverly light bathing the solstice with a thousand tiny moons. Not a word was spoken. The music and singing fell to nothing, and those who stood next to me shook. But whether it was from fear or anticipation, I could not say. But then Maris rose, holding her husband in the newly reappeared Sephora's hand. She moved to the center of the circle, leaving her family behind. Then, with a tired smile, she spoke. I have done my best to transcribe her exact words from memory. But due to the events that followed this speech, my recollection is not perfect. Please excuse any and all elaboration on my part. I do it for clarity's sake. Welcome, my friends, both old and new, she said, her voice strong but strained. We're almost to the end now. Another spring solstice gone, and we have survived to see it. I know sometimes it can be hard to remember. But survival is a triumph that we can all be proud of. You are here. I am here. And I am so proud of you all. At these words, the woman next to me gasped and covered her face, trying to hide her tears. I noticed she was in her mid-twenties, as were all the women in the circle, or even younger. Many were children, but none older than Maris herself. Tonight marks the seventh night of the spring solstice, and marks yet another goodbye. And with this, Maris's voice broke, and she herself covered her face, tears streaming from her chin and onto the moss between her feet. It may have been a trick of the light, but I could have sworn the moss reached up just a bit to consume the tears. My interest was cut short when Neville rose to embrace his wife and speak on her behalf. Maris moved back into the circle, where she was embraced by a crying Sephora. No such tears stained Neville's face, however, and his voice did not crack, as he thanked his wife for her service, her kind words, and her leadership. But the time for tears was over, he said. Now was the time for the chosen. At these words, the square fell to silence, broken only by the whimpering of a group of children. There were eight of them, all clutching to their mother as if she were to fall away forever. I was to learn later that the mother's name was Alicia. She was crying as well, but softly plied her children's arms from her. Then she rose and walked unsteadily towards the sapling, where she was joined a moment later by Maris. The two eldest women in the town stood across from one another with the sapling between them. Maris's face was stone. Alicia's crumpled and red. But they both stood there, as Neville raised his arms and shouted, 
As the island feeds us, so too do we feed it. And the two women raise their hands to the tree, placing them on its bark. The saplings seem to shiver at their touch, and then two of its branches droop downwards to lay gracefully on the wrists of both women. Then the branches came alive. Like snakes, they wrapped themselves around their wrists, and then the tip of each branch turned inward and slid into their flesh. Maris grunted in pain. Alicia screamed. I felt sick. He could see it. The vines underneath their skin, making their way up the arm and into their chest. Into the heart. Both women fell to their knees, their arms still held aloft by the sapling. The whole town held their breath, waiting for something. Waiting. 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 And then softly, slowly, white buds began to grow on the branch entering Maris's wrist. The crowd gasped. The flowers bloomed into pure white petals, gorgeous and pure. But at its center, bled a dark red. Red as the blood that dropped from Maris's wound. The town gasped as the flower bloomed, and the woman next to me whispered, No, not Maris. But it appeared the deed was done. Maris rose and smiled to her people. It's been an honor, she said, her voice shaking only a little. Then her eyes rested on her daughter. Sephora was not crying. Instead, her face was hard carved from rock, like her mother's. Maris smiled, turned, and only then did Sephora break. She cried out for her mother and ran from the crowd. Maris swept the girl up in her arms, and they held each other for a long moment. But when the moment was broken, it was not by Maris, but Alicia. She rose and moved to her leader. Words were exchanged that I could not hear. Maris was shaking her head violently, but it seemed as if Alicia had made up her mind. She moved to her eight children. They embraced her. Then she turned towards the forest and, shaking softly, walked into the darkness. A murmur broke out amongst the townspeople, all seemingly approving of Alicia's actions. I could not understand what was going on, but all questions were put to rest when a hand patted me on the shoulder. It was Niles Parbat and Don. Mr. Parbat wanted us to follow Alicia into the forest. Any objections I had were cut off when he said, You're here to witness. So witness. And so I followed Don around the corner of a house and through the trees. No one saw us go. It was like we were never there. The forest was lit, but the moon was dark. The trees dissolved into pitch black lines, lit only by their glowing leaves which sprinkled the ground with a silverly light. I would have been lost alone, but Don seemed to have traveled this path before and stepped as sure-footed through the darkness as Sephora did in daylight. Though I lagged behind, I was able to keep her in sight. We found our quarry easily enough. She did little to hide her passage. Now out of earshot from the town, Alicia let her sobs ring out through the night. She stumbled several times, but always picked herself up. With each step forward, I could see a certainty fall upon her. The certainty of death. We followed through the glowing trees. 
never revealing ourselves to the despondent woman. I felt the urge to reach out to her, to comfort her, but my duty here was to witness, to do nothing. It quickly became clear where Alicia was leading us. You could see it through the forest, a giant tree thrice the size of any of its siblings. It dominated the forest around it, and as Alicia came ever closer, she appeared smaller and smaller. She stopped at its base, looking up at the monstrosity with an air of wonder and fear. She sank to her knees, prostrating herself, offering herself. And for a moment, nothing happened. I found myself wishing that nothing would. But slowly, vines began to rise from the ground around her. Like a predator, they eyed Alicia, encircling her, searching for a weakness. Alicia stared back, her chin trembling, her eyes watering, her whole body shaking. But she met her fate with bravery. I can say that at the very least. I hope it is some small mercy to her memory. A mercy of which the vines did not seem to have. As one, they shot forward, puncturing into Alicia's body. She screamed in pain and went limp, but the vines immediately went taunt, propping her up, holding her in place. I wanted to scream, but Dawn quickly placed her hand over my mouth, her eyes never leaving Alicia, never leaving the vines as they shivered and began to sprout white flowers of their own. Alicia's breath began to slow, her eyes began to flutter, and then roots began to creep out of her mouth, her eyes, her ears, cutting through her skin, tracing their path throughout her body. The flowers bloomed from these roots, from the vines and from the moss around them. The ground seemed to shiver. Fruit began to burst into life in surrounding trees. It would have been a beautiful sight if not for the dying woman at its center. Finally, there was a crack, and Alicia stiffened, then relaxed. Her eyes closed, and the good woman died. And yet, she still moved. The vines retreated from her, but she did not fall. The only thing holding her up were the roots that coursed throughout her body. Awkwardly, Alicia's body rose, as if she were a puppet, operated by an especially poor puppet master. She stood in the clearing, her mouth hanging open, her back bent backwards at an angle I hoped to never see again. Then she took a step, then another, and another, until she disappeared around the tree and into the darkness. Dawn moved to follow, stopping only once to look back at me. She expected me to come, but I could not move, could barely breathe. I had never seen anything so horrible in all my life, and Dawn wanted me to see more? No. I shook my head, and Don was gone, leaving me alone in the forest that eats people. I thought of leaving, but knew I would only get lost. So I waited there for Don to return, not forty paces from where Alicia was killed, alone amidst the glowing trees.
The Endless Ocean was written and directed by Keenan Ellis. Ambient sound designed by Sword Coast Soundscapes. Check out our other podcast, The Phone Booth, which explores a world in which 99% of every human being on the planet has a superpower. Also, if you like our shows and want to help us make more, please consider becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash foolsgallery. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on The Endless Ocean.